If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been reading through the book of Proverbs as a body, as you heard just a few minutes ago, and we've been preaching through the book of Acts. And this morning we come to Stephen's speech in chapter 7. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we rejoice in the reality of the truths that we have just sung. You have redeemed our souls from the, from the pit of emptiness, and you have freed us from the prison of our own sin. And so this morning, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would mark this time with tremendous joy as we consider the reality of who you are and what you have done for us. So as we gather, glorify your name, we pray through the power of the Spirit, in the great and beloved name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Several years ago, I served as a juror for a case here in Blount County. For me, this case illustrated how important the the specific details are of witness testimony, how important they are for helping us to actually see the truth clearly. Now, the case essentially uh, revolved around the eyewitness testimony of a police officer who seemed very respectable and and very honest. The defendant was a young man with previous arrests, and he had lost his driver's license because of multiple violations. On appearance, the defendant just looked troubled. Now, The officer had dealt with this particular young man on multiple occasions, so he knew him and he knew his vehicle really, really well. So one evening when the officer was on his way to work to start his shift at the police department, he looked to his right at the stoplight at the bypass at 129 and up alongside him pulls this young man who has no license and looked over at him. So he checked in at the station, promptly drove to his house, and arrested him for driving without a license. However, the defendant said it wasn't him in the car. Likely story, right? Well, the the short version of what happened next is is that since the young man had lost his driver's license, his girlfriend had actually been using his car. And she let a friend borrow the car during the time in question who happened to be a guy. And I remember thinking at the time, I wonder if that friend looks anything like the defendant. Well, the defense attorney called this friend into the courtroom. And as soon as the doors opened, I think every member of the jury knew this was probably a case of mistaken identity. These two guys looked almost just alike. And the defendant was ultimately acquitted. But if you had asked me, if you had asked me to decide the case after the opening statements, I would have found the defendant guilty. 
But the actual details of the witnesses mattered. The truth is that as it was getting dark, the police officer, he saw a a similar looking man in the defendant's car. And a short time later, the officer then wrongly arrested the defendant for a crime he didn't commit. Listening carefully to the testimony given made the truth very clear. In today's passage. The original charges against Stephen were presented in a convincing way initially, but the actual details of his testimony make the truth to which he is testifying very, very clear. So our passage is Acts chapter 7 verses 1 through 16. You'll remember that Stephen has just been falsely accused brought before the council. And as he's sitting there in this tense situation, Luke notes that he had the face of an angel. Hear then the word of God, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place." And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem." This is Stephen's response to the question that he was asked. So Lord, lead us now, we pray, by the power of your spirit. 
Open our eyes so that we might behold your glory in these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the next few weeks, we will be looking at Stephen's response to the accusations that are made against him. His defense is the longest speech or sermon found anywhere in the book of Acts, which, which makes it especially intriguing. We, we just read the first 16 verses of his response, but it goes all the way to verse 53 near the end of chapter 7. But for our purposes this morning, we'll just set the context in verse 1 to kind of get back into the flow of the passage. We'll look at Stephen's focus on Abraham in verses 2 through 8. We'll think through his account of Joseph in verses 9 through 16. And we'll basically, we'll talk about Jesus throughout the whole time. Let's begin with verse 1. Stephen, a man full of faith and of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, has been accused of blasphemy against God. The men who were arguing with him from the synagogue of the freedmen stirred up false witnesses to testify against Stephen that he had spoken against the temple and against the customs of Moses. As you you picture this playing out, realizing that that Stephen's life very well is hanging in the balance, the, the, the tension of it just kind of just drips off the page as you hear the high priest ask, are these things so? How would you have responded if you stood in Stephen's place? None of us likes to be falsely accused. Few of us have ever faced false accusation when, when our life was actually hanging in the balance. Our first instinct is usually to defend ourselves, usually with a sense of righteous indignation. But recall that Stephen's face was, was like the face of an angel, despite his circumstances. He was probably radiating a sense of, of peaceful, if not joyful, calm to those around him. Just think of your last conflict or the last time you were falsely accused. Think perhaps of the next time you might be so that you might prepare your mind to not defend yourself as is typically our first instinct, but consider doing what Stephen did here. Seize the opportunity to point people to Jesus. Now, that's exactly what he does here, and his response carries all the way through to the end of the chapter. But the question is, why? Why doesn't Stephen defend himself more directly? Why does Stephen choose to answer their specific charges by by highlighting the history of Israel? Since he doesn't appear to be flustered at all. We can assume that his response is is very purposeful. So what is that 
purpose. His purpose is to glorify Jesus, and there are two specific purposes running through Stephen's response, which are as follows. One, the presence of God is not restricted to a particular place. The first purpose in what Stephen is saying is that he wants, he, he wants the people to understand that the presence of God is not restricted to a particular place because he's beginning to build an argument. Second, the people of God have often rejected messengers from God. The people of God have often rejected messengers from God. His purpose, ultimately, as he builds this case, is to demonstrate, ultimately, that they have rejected God's greatest messenger. So in the first place, Stephen is building a case that since the presence of God is not restricted to a particular land or place or, or building, then true worship of God can happen essentially anywhere. In other words, as a believer in Jesus, Stephen, Stephen is simply testifying to the truth of all that Jesus has accomplished He's testifying to the truth of, of what worship of God now looks like in light of the finished work of Jesus. So, so let's just pause for a moment and, and praise God. Literally, Lord, we praise your great name because we can. We can because of what Jesus has accomplished across an ocean over six thousand miles away from where the temple originally stood by faith at this moment in East Tennessee, a group of largely former Gentiles can genuinely worship God in a manner pleasing and honoring to him because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. The gospel is utterly amazing. So the first theme which Stephen is beginning to develop is that the presence of God is not confined or restricted to a particular location. Now the place Stephen is pointing is toward the reality that true worship of God can happen anywhere at any time through the work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now remember all of these things he is saying are in response to the question, are these things so? In other words, have you spoken falsely against the temple? Have you spoken falsely against Moses? Stephen is laying the groundwork to explain that, in fact, that is not the case. And he's using it as an opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, the second theme that Stephen highlights in his message is the fact that throughout the Old Testament and into the New, the people of God, sadly, even tragically, generally speaking, have rejected the messengers that God sent to them. Jesus told a parable exactly to that effect. But there is a long line of prophets way before that, whose message was not well received. The writer of Hebrews accentuates 
the seriousness of rejecting the revelation given to us by God. For he says in the opening verses of his letter, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom also he created the world. And he drives that point home by saying, indeed offering a terrifying warning. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, Stephen is arguing that a pattern has been demonstrated by the people of God throughout their history, and that pattern is to reject God's messengers. The point he is building toward is that the ultimate rejection of God's messengers is when people reject Jesus, God's very own son. I think Stephen was hoping that he would have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel as he's laying this groundwork. All he got out by the end of his speech was, you have murdered the righteous one. And then literally all hell breaks loose. And all he got to do was just touch ever so briefly on it. I think he was planning on pointing them to the hope that is found in Jesus that literally changes everything, including their worship. But as we think about this, as we think about the warning from the writer of Hebrews, I want you to let that thought inform the way you listen to the rest of this message so that no matter who you are and no matter what age you are, you are thinking very, very clearly about the seriousness of rejecting the gospel message. The message I am proclaiming this morning is testifying to the fact that Jesus was and is God's ultimate messenger. Jesus taught plainly that the only way to have your sins forgiven and to escape the wrath of God against your sin is to receive the forgiveness that God offers through his atoning work on the cross on your behalf. Jesus is the only person who can save you from your sins. His work on the cross is the only hope anyone has to have their sin and their shame covered. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're sitting here this morning and you know deep within your heart that that you still are rejecting the message of Jesus. And I I would say especially our young people if you have not yet put your faith fully in Jesus. I want you to think about the reality that throughout history, a number of very religious people have tragically rejected the salvation offered to them in Jesus. And I don't want you to be numbered among the rejectors of Jesus. May God open your eyes this morning to see the powerful work that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. So then, let's look for these two themes. God's presence on the move with his people and the rejection of God's chosen messengers. 
Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Note that as Stephen begins his defense, he uses language that is very honoring to God. That is, the God, don't forget, that he's accused of blaspheming. This is, this is not the language of a blasphemer. Now, Stephen opens up his historical account with God appearing to Abraham or, or talking to Abraham in his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, which, which was located basically near the Persian Gulf. The very first thing that God says to him is go. God calls Abraham to leave his land and his people so that God can, can give him a new land and form a new people from him. Verse 3. So immediately we find Abraham on the move, obeying God, essentially geographically moving northwest along the Euphrates River toward Haran, kind of above the promised land. And God is with him. And we know this because after Abraham's father dies, God removes, God removes Abraham from Haran, verse 4, and moves him further toward the land he plans to give to Abraham's descendants. Now, I'm summarizing because that's exactly what Stephen is doing. God speaks to Abraham and says that his descendants will be travelers, foreigners, in a land not their own. They will be enslaved, but God will judge the nation that mistreats his people. Then God says, the people will come out and worship me in the place that I will give them. And God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant God made with him, namely circumcision. This was a reminder to Abraham because, as, as Stephen points out here so far, Abraham doesn't own even a foot of land in the promised land that God had called them to. Everything hinges on the promise God made to him. Okay, since Stephen is summarizing, the main point that we see is God calling Abraham, moving with Abraham, engaging with the events of his life. This is extraordinary. What kind of a God is like this? What kind of a God is so great and yet so tender and attentive to details in the lives of human beings? Only one, this God. In other words, we see God in relationship with Abraham and his people. God is revealing himself whenever and wherever he chooses. Now, that might seem obvious to us. But think about what this would have sounded like to those whose entire worship experience every single day revolves around one particular location, namely the temple. If you want to meet with this God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this is where you need to go. And Stephen says, no, no, no. We're not thinking about this clearly. 
He's beginning to build his argument. So he offers this reminder, this corrective about how God has interacted throughout the history of Israel with his people. He called Abraham and he moved with Abraham and his beloved people from the place where they were comfortable. He moved them into another land. Then he moved them into an evil land and back out again, all to accomplish God's glorious, redemptive purposes. Now, this can be a corrective, not just for the religious leaders of the first century. This, this can be a corrective for us as well as we consider God's work in our lives. Sometimes God calls us out of comfort. Sometimes God calls us out of comfort and places us on the move. That is, in order to teach us to trust him more fully so that we might embrace his faithfulness, the goodness of his character, and the greatness of his ability to be absolutely every single thing that we need. But while this is happening, sometimes it may feel like God is distant from us. Or perhaps inattentive to the needs that we perceive that we have. But God is always working out what is ultimately best for those who love him. So just imagine what it felt like for Abraham and his wife Sarah to leave everything that was familiar to them based solely on the fact that God had called them to another place. Maybe you know a little bit what that feels like. Maybe you've been called to the mission field where everything is foreign. Or maybe God has moved your family in order to belong to a fellowship of believers or for whatever purpose he may have. On a personal level, when God called my family from the Chicago area more than 18 years ago, believe it or not, when he called me from Chicago to a land flowing with milk and honey, or sweet tea at least, right? <laughs> it was hard. It was hard for us to think about leaving every single thing that was familiar, including our family to go 600 miles to a totally different culture, much improved, by the way. And frankly, I don't, I don't think either of our families really understood. But by his grace, God used the example of Abraham and Sarah to minister to Christy and me repeatedly, especially when our lives felt completely foreign to us for a very long time. But looking back on it now, God used both really good experiences and really hard experiences to teach us to trust in his inexhaustible faithfulness. So where does God have you right now? Does he have you on the move? 
Are you in a place that feels foreign or uncomfortable or unfamiliar? Might he be calling you to one of these places soon? Know that God is not just the God of the end goal or the, or the final destination. God is a God on the move and he is Lord over the times of transition. Transitions, for the most part, are terrible. Most of us don't relish that time spent when there's no clarity. You're not sure what's happening. You don't know who your doctor is. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know who's living across the driveway from you. You don't know anything because everything is unfamiliar. And we can feel really, really vulnerable. But think about how many times throughout the history of God's people, think about how many times and how many things God taught his people while they were on the move. God is Lord over every transition in our lives. I can testify to that for you from my own life, and I can point you to the record of Abraham and Sarah's life. This is a major part of the history of God's people. In other words, the history of our people. We serve a living God who is always active and often calls us to follow him to places we would never dream of going on our own. Wherever God has you right now, wherever God has you right now, rest and rejoice as you soak in these words of Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, as we come to Stephen's account of the life of Joseph, again, he's summarizing in verses 9 through 16. Now, he recounts the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons, who are the 12 patriarchs. Here we see again that, that God is with his chosen ones, no matter where they are and no matter how dire their circumstances actually are. Perhaps the most important phrase is found in verse 9, describing Joseph, where it simply says, but God was with him. How comforting is that for your soul? I mean, given the fact that, frankly, atrocious evil had been done to Joseph and that he endured great suffering, Remember, his own brothers threw him in a pit and left him for dead. That's about as strongly as you can possibly be rejected by your family. That is as fully as you can be betrayed by someone. 
And then after he gets out, he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, not only sitting in the pit, now he's sitting in prison. It hasn't gotten much better. And he sat there for years. So it's noteworthy that Stephen mentioned that God was with Joseph even before God eventually rescued him out of his affliction. Verses 9 and 10. What is astounding about what happened to Joseph is that Genesis 50 makes it clear that in and through all of the heartache and pain, God was bringing about good and redemptive purposes through the events that happened, not just in Joseph's life, but in the lives of many, many other people. But I wonder if you would have asked Joseph at the time if he could have ever conceived of that. As he's in the pit, if you were standing on the edge and saying, Joseph, don't worry, God is doing great things. He's going to redeem this in your life and the lives of many, many other people. I think he would have looked up at you and cursed you and said, why are you mocking me? But the reality is that God did do good things and he did redeem every single thing that happened to Joseph. The lives of Joseph's family were saved because Joseph rose to power in Egypt so he could provide food for them, literally saving their lives in the midst of a famine. Perhaps even more importantly, according to God's redemptive purposes, the family who became the people of Israel were preserved. Heirs of the promise. At the end of Stephen's brief account, Jacob and the fathers die and they are taken down to Shechem so they could be buried in a tomb purchased by Abraham. Why Shechem? It's not a town we're particularly familiar with. The name might sound familiar, but, but, but what is its significance? Shechem was a place of promise. Indeed, of the promise. This is the location where Abraham stopped at the tree of Morah and received God's promise of the land. Shechem would eventually become part of the promised land. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, it was by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise with his descendants, heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So in a sense, Abraham was looking even beyond the promised land to be faithful to his God. A lesson he had to learn throughout his life. Don't forget, he held a dagger above his son's heart until God stopped him and said, no, I know that you will obey me. So as, as we walk through the ups and downs of life, as we travel with God on the move, may we too have, have our eyes ever fixed on the city that is to come, the city whose designer and builder is God. 
no matter what happens in our lives, we have to think about them in light of what is coming. Then, when God's purposes are vindicated, for the first time we will be able to see clearly to understand the things that have happened on this side of eternity. Now, the second and final aspect of Stephen's account of Joseph introduces the second theme of his message that it will carry through over the next several verses, that God's people tend to reject God's messengers, that is, God's chosen instruments of righteousness in the lives of his people. On a human level, Joseph was the person God had chosen as the one through whom his blessing would be poured out upon his people. Joseph was the one through whom God would rescue his people from death and cause them to flourish. Yet their rejection of Joseph was was infamous. He was rejected as completely as a person can be. He was left for dead. But in a very real sense, he was resurrected from the pit. Exalted to a position of great power so that he might reign over his brothers so that he could provide everything they needed. But as incredible as as Joseph's life is, and it is an incredible life, Stephen's using it as an illustration as he begins to build his case. And his case is that those who are standing before him, those who are accusing him in the moment, first accused and rejected another who stood in their midst, They rejected him so fully, they murdered him. And his name was Jesus. Later, Stephen will tell them that they murdered the righteous one. But he was raised from the dead and has been exalted to the highest place of honor in the universe at the very right hand of God himself. Jesus was reigning at the right hand of God at the very moment Stephen was testifying before the council. Now we know this because of the testimony of scripture and we know this because in a few moments the veil will be pulled back and Stephen with his very own eyes will look into heaven and behold Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Oh, My Lord and my God. That's awesome. Yet, the religious leaders continued to reject Jesus by refusing to receive the true witness that was being offered to them through Stephen. And the danger remains for us. So, despite my pleas earlier, if you are sitting here, even at this very moment, and in your heart you still know, you still know that you are rejecting the gospel message of Jesus, the message of salvation that is offered to you in Jesus. Just stop. 
If, if you know that's true for you, at this moment, just stop. Stop listening to me and talk to God. Cry out to God for mercy. Ask God to save your soul. Ask God to pour out the blessings that Jesus purchased for us over you. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus even now. Because however unconvincing the witness accounts may have seemed to you up to this point in your life, the details matter. My prayer for you now is that much like the realization I came to as a juror, you will see that what at first may have seemed extremely unlikely to you, that you in fact do need Jesus, it turns out in fact to be 100% true. Because Jesus is the only hope for salvation. But friend, what a hope he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for the beauty and power of your redemptive purposes. Thank you for preserving this historical summary so that our souls might be encouraged so many years after it was written down. Lord, I pray that as we, as we consider who you are and as we consider the greatness of your works from creation to recreation, I pray that I pray that our hearts would overflow with thankfulness and joy knowing that you are a God who is always with his people and always working for the good of his people. To that end, lead us in worship, I pray, through the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.